Welcome to the IOTICS podcast, where we are talking to inspiring humans who are not just doing things differently, but doing different things to make their world, and by extension ours, a better place. We'll explore how they are bringing people and technology together to solve complex challenges today. My guest for this episode is Louise Donahay, Services Programs Director at Rolls-Royce Defence. I found this a powerful listen, talking through the impact of Jet Zero and 100% sustainable aviation fuel, but also the need for a patchwork quilt of data sharing and initiatives to bring collaborators, cooperation and competition together in different circumstances. But most strikingly for me, Louise talks about the role of vulnerability in leadership, of the power of diversity of thinking and the need for inclusivity of environments, most especially the role of personal purpose. And I think Louise challenges us to see the defence industry differently, to think about the strength in caring and the power of protection. I hope you enjoy. Louise, welcome. Thanks for coming on the IOTICS podcast. Um, I wanted to kick off just a little bit. You, I know that you're the Services Programs Director at Rolls-Royce. Um, just tell me a little bit about what the role entails and sort of the sphere of your responsibilities. Sure. So it's Rolls-Royce Defence, and I'm privileged to lead four of our engine programmes. Two of those engine programmes are combat engines, so the RB199 powering the Tornado, the EJ200 powering the Typhoon fighter aircraft, and two of my engines are transport engines. It's the TP400 powering the A400M, and then the Trent 700, which powers the multi-role tanker transport aircraft. So leading those engine programs means that they're in service, they're operating with multiple different defense customers around the globe, and my team are there to support the operation of those engines as they're in service in both humanitarian missions and also in combat scenarios. Fantastic. And it's a fascinating uh, time to be involved uh, with these engines because there's a lot of initiatives currently happening in the UK, and Jet Zero is one that stands stands in mind, where the very nature of how your engines operate seems to be changing. Uh, and I know that some work was done uh, on the RAF Voyager, I think it was, uh, around Jet Zero. Can you, can you explain a little bit about what it is that Rolls-Royce Defence are doing uh, with the engines and, and the kind of transition that's happening? Absolutely, because it's one of the areas of key focus for Rolls-Royce right now. And in fact, we've got a mission across our whole business to get to net zero, and that's including our civil aerospace business. So the Voyager fleet that you reference is actually the multi-role tanker transport fleet. It's powered, it's the A330 militarized version, and it's powered by our Trent 700. Now, the Trent 700 is actually one of our civil products. And we were really proud to be part of an initiative to actually operate one of the Voyager aircraft on 100% sustainable aviation fuel. Wow. So that's one of the Royal Air Force's aircraft. It does their air-to-air refueling and some of their tankering missions. And we've had our Trent engines certified for 50% sustainable aviation fuel for quite some time. But this actually was a world first for a tanker aircraft operating both engines on 100% sustainable aviation fuel. And we did that in partnership with our UK MOD customer, also with Airbus, obviously accountable for the airframe. And that was a moment earlier this year where we successfully completed that first 100% sustainable aviation fuel flight. 
it seems to me to be a challenging thing to bring all those different organizations together. I mean, I, I know they all share a common aim in terms of, of, of getting to more sustainable uh, net zero emissions. But how did you find the work of bringing together Airbus and MAD and Rolls-Royce Defence to achieve that, that common aim? I think you said it well. It's incredibly challenging. We are united with a common goal, but we actually have very different parts to play in that equation. So BP were also involved. Um, they supplied the fuel. Our customer actually was the one that gave us the permission to operate. But the logistics of actually getting the amount of sustainable aviation fuel that you require to the base, the engine testing required to ensure that what we're doing is safe to operate, and actually working in coordination with Airbus to ensure that everything we're doing from an engine perspective is integrated and operates in collaboration with the aircraft systems. So it was about 18 months in the making wow. when we actually flew earlier this year. And it isn't something that we're doing in operation. It was done to prove that it's possible. Now, we were successful in that and we'll continue to work to understand how we can better bring more SAF into operation. But you're right to say it was challenging, even though those organizations all want to achieve a net zero or, as you've said, jet zero goal. The work that it takes to actually make that happen is incredible. Yeah. And really proud to have been part of that achievement earlier this year. And it's wonderful to me that proving you can seems to me to fundamentally shift the dial on your customer and, and uh, HMG's desire too. You know, if you know you can do something, then the balance shifts slightly on whether you ought to and how much political emphasis you put on doing it and so on. So it seems to me an incredible first step, albeit a, a long step of 18 months, but a, a first step in saying we absolutely proved it can be done. Um, what's your, your ambition for sort of where next? Uh, in, in that direction? So from a Rolls-Royce perspective, for our civil fleet, we're looking at having all of our Trent engines certified to operate with 100% sustainable aviation fuel by 2030. Wow. Now, not many of our Trent engines power our defense portfolio. It is only the multi-role tanker transport aircraft and the Voyager sure. fleet is how it's termed for the UK MOD. So there's much more that we need to do in the defense space. And a lot of that work is happening in our technology development program called Tempest. So as we look at the future of combat for the UK, and we look at forming collaborations and partnerships, and we've recently announced a partnership with Japan and Italy, we are looking more into a system of systems so much less about a traditional crude aircraft, much less about gas turbine or any technology that, that burns fossil fuels, and much more into how do we better power a system of systems to give us superiority in the airspace. So there's a lot of technology development that's happening in Tempest. It's not necessarily about a single aircraft. Sure. It's about how do we command that airspace in the future. And I'd suggest to you that it looks very different from how it looks today, with a lot of emphasis on uncrewed vehicles, um, whether they're drones of a particular size, whether they're actual aircraft that are crewless or uncrewed, pick your term. Um, <laughs> a lot of that is being done to understand how we can better power things sustainably. But the dichotomy, I think, for the aviation industry is how do you do both at the same time in a complementary fashion? Because it's a lot like electric cars. You can't suddenly stop all of the petrol and diesel cars operating on the roads because we wish to bring in more electric cars. You have to find a way of introducing 
the sustainable power while still supporting the power that is existing out there because we've got 120 customers for the defense business operating fleets in service today. They're going to continue to operate many of those fleets for decades. So how do you better, more sustainably support those that burn fossil fuels whilst in parallel developing more sustainable ways of powering our future aircraft and supporting our future aircraft? And I would suggest we're going to have to do both for decades to come. Yeah, and the, the long tail that we have with these assets and platforms seems to me to be a major challenge that there, there isn't any kind of switch that can just happen and and poof everything everything moves over um, I, I wish there were <laughs> i wish there were that switch the other challenge we've got is some of the increasing pressure that we see defense budgets coming under even though the world is increasingly unstable we're still seeing governments trying to spend less or perhaps prove more value for money yeah and that is a dilemma because you need to invest in order to have more sustainable power solutions. And we've got aircraft, I'll use the Jaguar aircraft in India as an example, that actually entered service in the 1960s and are still operating today. You've seen the B-52 bomber. Rolls-Royce were privileged to win the competition to re-engine the B-52 bomber. By the time that aircraft goes out of service, it will have been in service more than 100 years. Wow. So we have to find ways in which to develop new sustainable technology, and we're absolutely doing that and investing in that. But we also need to understand how to better sustainably support what's in service today. And that's part of the nature of my role is I'm accountable for supporting the in-service engine programs, but also working with my colleagues in future programs to make sure that all the lessons we're learning today about how we support those fleets can be read across into supporting the fleets of tomorrow. So that's something that also is happening in Rolls-Royce Defence right now. Fantastic. And you mentioned uh, the Jaguar in India and and the international collaboration of uh, Japan, Italy and the UK on the Tempest programme. I I did want to touch on your previous role where you were one of the leaders in India and Southeast Asia um, because I know that when you were working with the Indian Air Force, there was a lot of emphasis on partnership and co-creation, co-development of solutions. It seems to be a thread uh, in this conversation, at least, of that need to work with other people. I wonder if you could just touch a little bit on on your role uh, in India and Southeast Asia and and that focus on partnership. Absolutely. So previously, I was accountable for business development, defence business development across India and Southeast Asia. And one of the main threads of that business development was future combat. And we have previously, with India and we're not alone in this, across the industry, many people in aerospace have partnered with India to make in India. So, for example, we we licensed production of the Ador engine in India back in the late 1960s and, and 70s, depending on which mark of engine you're, you're talking about. So we've done make in India, and we've been doing make in India for more than 40 years. And I could say that about lots of industry partners across the aerospace business. What we started to talk about around... 2018 is create in India. So India is fascinating. They've got such a wealth of of talent and engineering expertise and ambition and aspiration. And why wouldn't we want to tap into that and partner with such a rich landscape in order to co-create the future of combat? 
So whilst I was leading business development for the defense business in India, we looked at how we could best co-create and share intellectual property, which we know is a huge challenge um, across the defense business. And we were looking at it very specifically as to how could we co-create an engine to power a future combat aircraft. Because today, India operates the Jaguar aircraft into service in the 1960s and the Hawk fleet. They have a huge Hawk fleet into service in the late 1970s. They have a need to replace those fleets in the future as they move forward. They have many other aircraft available. It's a very large air force, but they also have a passion to create something of their own. And so what we began to talk to India about is how do you not make in India, which is very much hand them a design and they manufacture the design, but how do you harness the potential of the talent in India to actually co-create and then co-produce an engine for the future? And we're not the only nation talking to India about that. That's very much in the open media. Um, Certainly France is in that dialogue. The US is in partnership and talking with India. There's a rich landscape in which to operate. But we were very keen, given our rich history with India, that we could be the partner of choice for co-creation. We actually also created a government-to-government framework between the UK government and the government of India, under which we could do something which was of such strategic importance to both nations. So it goes beyond then an industry collaboration into a governmental collaboration because it's in the best interest of both nations to partner because you'll create something better together than if we both look at creating future combat separately. I absolutely see that um, more than the sum of its parts aspect to to both the work you're now doing in your current role and, and, and that previous role. And it seems to me that challenge of IP sharing is is the next stage. I know it's something that the MOD and Defence Digital have been calling for in the UK is, is better frameworks or patterns for sharing of IP. So it's fantastic to hear that that was a journey you've already, you know, not just make and a sort of pass over the wall, if you will. I mean, I realise that's a simplification, but a kind of pass over the wall of here it is, but actually to that real true co-creation where you're sharing or exchanging or exposing IP to each other. Um, was there a clear appetite within the organization uh, for that? Because it, it seems something that I know that a lot of uh, players, not just in your industry, but in other industries and other sectors, are quite anxious about in terms of, of exposing um, IP and, and sensitive commercial information. There's a clear appetite, absolutely. But there is also a clear dichotomy as to how you achieve true transparency of intellectual property. So intellectual property data is where the real power is. Mm. And in our industry, often we are a little bit schizophrenic. (laughs) So with the partners with whom we work, one day we are partners, one day we are competitors. So it's one of the biggest challenges for the defense industry is how do you actually share data, intellectual property, with somebody that is simultaneously your partner and your competitor? Because if you look at a lot of the current collaboration programs, and EJ200 is a great example, that's a consortium engine. There are four partner companies that contribute to actually manufacture and support that engine, of which Rolls-Royce is only one. Mm -hmm. Now, they're partners in Eurojet. They're competitors on the broader defense landscape. So how do you create a framework in which you can securely and safely share data that doesn't impact your competitive position in 
what is quite frankly a very small industry. There yeah. are only a finite number of players today yeah. in the defense industry. And when you look at energy manufacturers, that pool becomes even smaller. So how do you collaborate one day to compete the next while sharing data that enhances the collaboration but doesn't harm your competitive advantage? And that's probably badly articulated, but no. I see that as one of the biggest challenges for the defense industry today. No, I, th I think that was perfect because, I mean, this is something that, that we see. I mean, so uh, in IOTIC's language, we talk about cooperation versus collaboration. So, you know, collaboration is we'll all come together and we'll agree exactly like the Eurojet piece. You know, we'll all agree exactly how we're going to do it and where we're going to do it and so on. Whereas actually on a broader level, you want to cooperate. So there will be some places where we share information to a certain end, but we each maintain our uh, our own individual goals, aspirations, ambitions, and so on, because you're not building a, a collaborative industry, you're building a cooperative industry. We will come together and work on some pieces, but not others, and we'll be able to uh, collaborate here and compete there. I, so I think that's a perfect articulation of something that, that is very, very common, and I think is misunderstood. I, I think actually the defense industry is better at articulating it because it's sometimes clearer because of the sensitive nature of, of what you're doing um, that you can't just all collaborate. You know, in, in other sectors, transport, for example, I think there has been, uh, as in um, land transport, there's been a kind of, oh, we should all just come together to collaborate. And you're like, well, hold on, these companies compete in mm -hmm. every other sphere and often in different geographies and they have different relationships in different geographies with each other. Everyone's not going to sign up to one way of doing things just because it benefits the West Coast mainline or, or whatever else it might be. So no, I, I completely see it as a, as a generic problem and pattern for overcoming, which is why I think it's so fantastic to, to be hearing about how it's sitting together. Yeah, and it's a great way of articulating it. So what we're trying to knit together is a patchwork quilt of competing, collaborating and cooperating, very likely with the same players in each of those three spaces. Yeah. And that is an incredibly complex environment, but it's one in which we need to have a framework to operate with the necessary firewalls. Uh, and I would suggest that we're really well practiced in defense at establishing firewalls. Yeah. So there are partners on a program and there are some partners on a separate program, but there are alternative programs joining that separate program. So you have to create almost a wall that doesn't allow the data to flow between the two programs if they're distinctly separate. Yes. And we've had a lot of practice in establishing firewalls. But my observation is sometimes that gets in the way of proper cooperation, to use the word that yeah. I think you've used describes it yeah. very well. this for me seems like a, a mental shift from from sort of no because to yes if you know we're very good at firewalls as an industry um no we can't do that because there are these concerns to yes if these strictures controls and so on are in place then absolutely we could we could do it and that for me that that shift seems to come back to leadership i mean you spoke about harnessing the talent uh, around you we've spoken a little bit about things being more than some of its parts but I, I'm fascinated in your take on, on leadership because you're in this prominent position within your industry and driving a really significant change both for Rolls-Royce Defence and for the wider industry and considering, as you said, with the 
Trent 700, its civilian applications actually a much broader footprint beyond. I'm right in thinking that you actually did some formal leadership training at um, Windsor. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. yeah excellent. And um, and I was I was having a snoop around as I sometimes like to do in advance of these, and I was really fascinated by a piece that you wrote about the role of vulnerability in leadership, and I it's it's an unusual expression to hear I think uh, and especially for someone with a who's involved in defense the word vulnerability being used as a strength I wonder if you could just kind of outline a little bit what what you mean by it and how you came to it as a, as a concept absolutely um, and I think the short answer to how I came to it is a very long and difficult path um, there is incredible power in vulnerability and that's not an oxymoron um, I think it's important for teams to see leaders as human and teams to see leaders as imperfect because in a way to see a leader as less than perfect gives you permission to be less than perfect. And let's be honest, we're all very much less than perfect. But it took me quite some time to get there. And Windsor was actually a really important part of my leadership journey because I came from a military upbringing, a little bit of stiff upper lip. Mm-hmm. Um, I know it's very British, but it was very much show no weakness. And somehow through my formative years, that became my leadership mantra, show no weakness, um, almost to the extent of be perfect, be who the organization needs you to be. And I very much adopted that facade through through school, through secondary school, a um, bit of a coping mechanism um, for the environment in which I found myself in. But when I entered the corporate world, it was very much I needed to know the answers to lead the team. It sounds so naive when I say it now with the benefit of hindsight and experience. But that was my mindset. My mindset was one of be perfect, show the team the way. You can't afford not to be okay. And when I went to Windsor, Windsor was an opportunity to unpack some of the experiences that had led me to that false conclusion. Um, and some of those experiences were, were childhood bullying, right. being told you're not enough, you're not good enough, not pretty enough, not sporty enough, not popular enough. And I think what I was doing is spending all of my time as a leader in my adult life, trying to prove those school bullies wrong. I'm pretty sure that they weren't watching and they didn't care by that point. So I'm not entirely clear what was driving me. But I really felt that to show vulnerability was to show weakness and was therefore to fail. And I dislike saying that out loud now because I fundamentally believe the opposite. So Windsor and the space that that gave allowed me to unpack some of that and express some of what I felt. And when I expressed my fear of failure, the fact that I showed up and didn't feel good enough, the fact that most days I'm terrified people are going to find out that I'm not actually the best person to do this job. People identified with that. And instead of turning away and thinking that I was less of a leader, I found that people were more attracted to me, more likely to talk to me and engage with me because something I'd said had resonated with them. And actually being perfect puts people off. Mm. Even pretending to be perfect puts people off because they can't identify with you. They may be struggling with having a really difficult day and just not feeling okay and not feeling like they've got it together. And if they've got a leader that just presents like they have, 
then they feel like less of a person. Yeah. So now I think showing up and showing it's okay not to be okay and saying, hey, I'm having a really bad day today. I really haven't got this sorted. I really could do with some help actually encourages inclusivity because people then feel they're okay not to be okay. And they'll engage in a conversation about why they might be feeling the way that they're feeling. I just find this fascinating and brilliant because it it seems to me a, a, a counterpoint to a very common thread where people talk about imposter syndrome and and you know feeling like you shouldn't be there except that I haven't hadn't previously been able to put my finger on it but part of the problem with imposter syndrome is that yeah you don't need to feel like an imposter because you are perfect and you're you're untouchable and and everything else and you should be and actually what I'm hearing from you is actually the embracing of that vulnerability of I might be in a position of leadership and actually I don't have all of the answers and I'm perfect and I'm untouchable and whatever else. And that very real human feeling of what am I doing here and I don't I don't have it all together and, you know, have I been, you know, has the Peter principle come into effect and I've been promoted beyond my capability actually embracing that vulnerability and being able to draw people to you and share and recognize in each other is a fundamentally different take for me and much more powerful because ultimately what I've seen and read around the imposter syndrome smacks more of you just don't have it like you're fine and it's great and everyone's got it but otherwise you're fine and great and and you know and is actually try and present like like you don't have it so actually proactively embracing something I think sounds incredibly powerful and is a journey that you then take other people with on as well I mean you spoke about being more approachable if you're using vulnerability as a strength and rather than the kind of standoffish perfection and and untouchable so presumably that enables you to bring other people with you on the journey and and perhaps give them the space to similarly recognize uh, the role that vulnerability can play in their development I believe so. And I've got a great example just last week, actually. So last week I did a career talk to some of our early career population. And when I was introduced, they read from my bio. And I've got more than 27 years experience across Royal Air Force, Rolls-Royce, across many different functions. And I've led teams in America, Africa, India, Southeast Asia, Europe, UK. And as they were reading the bio... I was thinking, wow, wow, who is this person? Who's done all of these things? I was like, oh, that's that's me. And I hadn't heard it all put together before. And I had a moment of pride and a moment of humility at the same time. And then I started to talk to the group of early career professionals. And the question was, tell us how you've got to where you are. And it's a very zigzag journey. Absolutely, you wouldn't design it that way. It's not textbook. (laughs) But one thing I said, amongst many things, um, one thing I said was when I was asked to do this role, I've been doing this role just more than two years, I was terrified. And I mean that, absolutely. I was terrified at the magnitude of this role. It's four engine programs serving 120 customers across the globe. And at the end of the day, it is life and death. We have the power to protect in the humanitarian missions that we fly, but up. Engines need to perform, and they also need to perform financially. So there's a shareholder impact as well. So it's a huge job. (laughs) And when I was asked to consider the role, I was absolutely terrified. And I spent the first six months 
not knowing what I didn't know and feeling completely overwhelmed and wondering if I'd made a mistake. Uh, and again, you get that, am I good enough? Can I actually achieve? And I shared that with this group of early career professionals openly because that is genuinely how I felt. And I'm not going to lie, there are still days I feel terrified and overwhelmed by this job two years in. But that first six months was particularly traumatic. And I turned to people I could trust. And I recruited a diverse leadership team, a team that represented diversity of thought, a team with different styles and experiences, that not one of us has all the answers, but together we can figure stuff out. And actually, there are people I can turn to to say, I have not got this today. I am not okay. And they might reflect back at me, hey, I'm not okay either, but let's do this together. Or they might say, do you know what? I've pretty much got it together today. I can help you. I can support and enable what we need to achieve together. So I think brutal honesty is one of the key parts of leadership. The other thing I think differentiates a great leader is caring. It's caring deeply about the mission, about what you're there to achieve. But more importantly, caring about your people, mm. caring about the person next to you caring about the team and their, their well-being. And in a way, yes, I say I run a portfolio of engines. I've just got a great leadership team. And ultimately, if we boil it down to what do I do every day? Well, I enable them to be at their best. And to do that, I've got to care. And I've got to show up every day caring. And I think that's one of the key qualities of leadership. And to care, to bring it back to your original question on power of vulnerability, to care, you have to be human and you have to be vulnerable because nobody is really going to feel cared for by a perfect robot. Yeah. And you mentioned there that the team you've built, and I think that's fantastic that the way you articulated that actually the portfolio of engines is, is your team are delivering and you are caring for and, and empowering the team. But you also spoke about the diversity of the team and the diversity of thought and so on. And, and it seems to me uh, that you had a military background, early military career, now working in the defense sector, has not always been the most uh, diverse um, sector, set of organizations. I, I, you know, I, I, I that, that's politely put. Yeah, I, I, I don't want to be... Because uh, I, I know there are lots of initiatives in trying to broaden diversity. But that must have been a challenge for you coming up. And then have you seen the benefits of that of then bringing that diversity in uh, yourself in the leadership team that, and, and the quality of the team that you now have? Short answer is absolutely yes. Um, there is huge benefit in diversity of thought. So when I'm sat here saying diversity, I'm not simply talking about gender diversity. It's difference of background, difference of styles, educational experience, career experience, difference of I guess, programs to which you've been exposed or value sets. So so true diversity in all of its forms and not just gender. To bring it back to your point, gender diversity is obviously something that's visible and is a challenge in the defence industry. I'm going to be brutally honest. I think I chose the defence industry because it isn't particularly gender diverse. Um, and given the childhood experience of bullying by girls. It mm. felt like a safe place to be in a male-dominated environment. Right. And again, with the benefit of hindsight, that probably wasn't the best driver for a career <laughs> choice, but it is what it's true. 
Um, we are struggling to attract more women into the defence industry because I think the image of the defence industry can be one of an aggressor. Yeah. When actually, if you change your perspective, it's the power to protect. The defence industry is about protecting people's rights. Defence industry is about how do you enable nations to protect themselves in an increasingly unstable world. And I think if you look at it from a protection and humanitarian perspective, and we only have to think about the recent evacuations from Sudan and see the part yeah. that the defence industry played. And indeed, a lot of those aircraft proudly were powered by Rolls-Royce or a consortium of which we're a part. There's a lot of power to protect and humanitarian elements to the defence business, which I don't think are obvious when perhaps girls are considering industries or career choices or direction at school. However, the fact remains that it is not particularly gender diverse. Um, maybe I felt comfortable with that when I entered the industry and that felt like a safe place. Having experienced the power of inclusion, because it's inclusion that leads to diversity. Yeah. Right, I have a personal view that if you get out there and you chase diversity, you bring in people that look and think differently. If you bring them into an environment that's not particularly inclusive, they leave. Yeah. Which is completely counterproductive because you've invested time and energy bringing them in. Only they then find they don't belong. They don't feel like they belong, so they leave. Actually, you're in a worse place than when you started. So I have a view that you should actually focus on inclusion because by creating an inclusive environment, you attract diversity. And because you've got an inclusive environment, the diversity is likely to stay rather than going out there and getting diverse candidates because you're trying to meet a target or you're trying to improve your statistics. Yeah. That fundamentally personal opinion, not Rolls Royce opinion, personal opinion is wrong. You should focus on the environment in which you operate and make that environment inclusive, one in which people feel they belong. They have psychological safety so that they can express a view and not be judged. Their opinions are valued. So they express an opinion and they see difference as a result of their contribution. That's an environment in which diversity wants to be. Diversity will thrive. And, and I just think as an industry, we focus too much on the statistics and bringing in diversity rather than the environment. And I guess just creating a space where different people want to be and they believe in the purpose. Mm. Because in the defense industry, what we do matters. Mm. And I'm not saying that if you were a crisp manufacturer, no brand names, that snacks aren't important, because yeah. they are. I mean, people would be hangry without snacks. <laughs> but ultimately, do they make a difference to the global environment? When I'm speaking to early career professionals looking at Rolls-Royce, looking at the defense industry, what I'm hearing is key themes is personal purpose. They want to feel connected to something that makes a difference. The world is in a really precarious position. We only have to read any newspaper that we happen to pick up today to understand that. So what I'm seeing with the younger generations, newer generations coming through is they want to feel a connection to the purpose of the business and feel that what that business does is significant and will make the world a better place. Mm. They are also keenly focused on sustainability, which links back to your previous question on jet zero. Yeah. So what we're hearing as well from people entering the business from whichever educational route they choose, they're hearing sustainability is key. We want to be in an organizational part of a 
collaboration that is focusing on making the world a better place and more sustainable solutions, we also want connection to purpose. And I think there are very few industries where you can actually see in the media that what you do matters. Mm -hmm. I reference the evacuation from Sudan because it's a very recent happening. We could just go back to last year and look at the evacuations from Afghanistan. And each time, honestly, that I see a Rolls-Royce powered aircraft or the aircraft is powered by the engine from a consortium of which we're a part, I just feel a huge moment of personal pride because there's nothing prouder than being involved in the defense of a nation, whether mm. you're on the front line serving in one of our armed forces or whether you're part of the industry that powers those aircraft that takes civilians away from an area of conflict. And for me, that connection with personal purpose is coming through as a key desire for early career professionals joining the defense industry. Louise, my kind of final question is is really, what could we all do? I mean, the, I've loved this conversation and, and, and hearing you talk with such passion about purpose, the role of vulnerability, um, the need to care, uh, the need to create spaces that are trusted, where you know people are trusted to share and be as they are. Um, are there any kind of actions, thoughts, steps for anyone listening that you you know if you had a kind of call to arms, um, pardon the pun, um, you know that that if people could just, what would the just be? If people could just think of the defence industry in the terms of the power to protect, because to wrap it up, I think this is about people wanting purpose in the world. And when you find your purpose, whatever that purpose may be, you actually can tap into your passion. And if you find a connect with your personal purpose, and that really makes you passionate about what you do, you will be that purposeful, caring, and effective leader. And I'm not in any way sat here saying today that personal purpose connection has to be the defense industry. Mm. I just think a lot of people have an image of the defense industry as an aggressor and shy away from that and want to do something to make the world a better place. Well, by being part of the defense of a nation, we are making the world a better place. But my advice to anyone listening is not about the defense industry. From a personal perspective, I'd say, be clear on your personal purpose, be clear on your value set and what you want to achieve. Be flexible in how you actually achieve that purpose and do it with passion. Brilliant. Thank you so much. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thank Excellent. you. Thanks to our guest, Louise Donahay, for that honest and powerful conversation. Thanks to Runway Studios for hosting us, Joe Davis for the graphics. IOTIC's podcast is a Schnaffle podcast production, and if you know an inspiring human, who you'd like to talk about their interest, their work, or their industry, reach out to us at podcast at iotics.com. Until next time, thank you.